to this episode of Drug Target Reviews podcast, sponsored by Revity. I'm your host, Taylor Mixides, editor of Drug Target Review. In this episode, we'll be discussing making organoids ready for screening. Bringing their expertise today, I'm thrilled to introduce Dr. Nathan Gurdy, manager of the Australian Organoid Facility at the University of Queensland, and Dr. Amy George, manager of the ANU Centre of Therapeutic Discovery at the Australian National University. At Revity, we provide health science solutions, technologies, expertise and services that deliver complete workflows from discovery to development and diagnosis to cure. Learn more at Revity.com. It'd be fantastic to hear more about your backgrounds and the facility that you're both working for. So I'll pass over to you, Nathan. Hi, thanks, Taylor. So my background is really working up a new organoid facility at the Australian Institute for Bioengineering and Nanotechnology at the University of Queensland in Australia. So I've been there since its inception, the last one and a half years. Prior to that, I worked at our national biocontainment facility for about five years, developing stem cell-derived models of infection, so studying highly pathogenic or exotic viruses like SARS-2 and Hendra and rabies and things like that using stem cell organoid models. So um, at that time, I also managed a laboratory that was providing quality-short cell lines for ISO 17025 work. So I've had a bit of experience around quality systems as well doing that. But actually, most of my career, I've been a cancer researcher. So I actually did my postdoc at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre alongside Amy, funnily enough. And my interest was in genes that control cell organisation organization and tissue architecture. And so these kind of genes are super important for tissue development, but they're always disrupted in cancer and have these tumor suppressive properties. So the only way to study those cells is in 3D. 2D cells are just not useful at all. So I initially worked a lot with genetically engineered mouse models of breast development. These are are really costly and time consuming. And but fortunately, you know, Back in 2007, when I did my postdoc, you know, a lot of the early development of organoids was pioneered in the mammary gland, which was the tissue I studied by a lot of the labs, by people like Mina Bissell and Joan Brug. And so that's been, a, was a really wonderful way to complement those large scale mouse studies with organoids. And so that's really where my interest in, in organoid research started. Thanks, Taylor. Thanks, Nathan, for the wonderful introduction. So I'm an Associate Professor in Pharmacogenomic Technologies and I lead a research group at the John Curtin School of Medical Research at at the Australian National University in our capital of Australia, Canberra. But I guess, as Nathan mentioned, we kind of overlapped a little bit in terms of our postdoctoral studies. So back in uh, 2008, I was a postdoc at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne as well. And I was actually interested in functional screening and high throughput screening. And so part of my training, I really enjoyed that part of my uh, training, I guess. And so um, from there um, in 2015, I moved to the ANU. And since 2017, I've built and led the ANU Centre for Therapeutic Discovery or the ACTD because it's a bit of a mouthful. And so I guess my area of expertise really is in high throughput screening and drug discovery with a specific focus on cancer therapy as well as rare bone marrow failure disorders and diseases of unmet need. But that being said, the facility that I lead is disease and disorder agnostic. So I actually collaborate quite a lot with many researchers across Australia on various different biological and chemical projects. 
So uh, I suppose that the types of work that we do um, is really assay services and assay development through to high-throughput screening, and we do this in cell-free and cell-based systems. And so I guess in the last few years, we've really started to to do more of the 3D work primarily uh, with all sorts of different readouts. And so that's where I come into the the PAR as being a little bit of a novice in the organoid space myself, but actually helping to support the 3D biology um, that, that people are wanting to do in particularly drug discovery projects. Brilliant. Thanks, Amy. And thanks for those fantastic introductions. So this week, we are understanding why researchers are turning to 3D organoids and how organoids can be made ready for screening. Let's begin our conversation today by discussing how the experimental model should be modified for high throughput. Sure, I guess this is a really complex question and uh, I will preface what I say by saying that it depends very much on the model and the biology available. I suppose in our hands we work predominantly with adult organoids, so these are mostly cancer-derived tumours and cancer stem cells, though we're really starting to get some interest in assisting with iPSC-derived models and I guess with those there is some increased complexity, which is something that I want to wanting to explore my research program, but I'm sure Nathan can probably talk a little bit more about. I suppose the adult cancer organoids that we've worked with generally grow quite well. They can be dissociated into passage for several generations, which really helps with us to being able to miniaturize them. For these assays, I guess clients are generally testing FDA-approved therapies or novel drugs in combination with FDA-approved drugs. Um, And the readouts are generally viability, which can be very easily measured using products like cell cytoglow, for example, or even through imaging-based modalities such as calcium AM, methidium, homodyne, staining, which, which can measure viable and dying cells um, with imaging-based readouts. I guess when we increase the complexity, it can be very challenging, not just in terms of growth and reproducibility, but the heterogeneity of some of the samples that we that we have and we have to deal with. And we all know that organoids have a lot of limitations due to, you know, less likelihood of being vascularized. And so that can really contribute to that, as well as the penetration of dyes and other molecules and imaging modalities, which can detect the biology in the center of these structures without optical distortion. So we do can be sometimes limited by the technology that we have. But that being said, it also depends on the sample that we get. So I just want to give you one quick example. For one of the projects that we've been doing, we've tried to dispense intestinal organoids using our liquid dispensing robot, the, the Janus, used in, in Matrigel, into 384 well plates. And unfortunately for that particular assay, the cells didn't grow so well. So um, my team and I went back and actually looked at the drawing board and decided we wanted to go back to a 96 well format and so we instead dispensed organoid domes into the centre of the well and that actually worked wonderfully and was very, very reproducible and that was great for that project because we didn't actually need to screen that many drugs for that particular assay. But just wanted to finish what I'm saying by indicating I think that we as a scientific community can actually be better at understanding the process of organogenesis and then we can adapt some of our approaches to suit this and really will help with miniaturization and things like uh, automated processes, robotics, 3D bioprinting, nanofabrication, novel matrix development, and moving away from our dependency on matrix will certainly help with that. 
Yeah, so actually um, we're coming at it from a different direction. So this works out well to um, Amy's team. So, you know, when you think about organoid facilities, you kind of traditionally get two flavours. You get organoid facilities that are manually generating them and can give it technical advice to people to do these on small scale. And then you get facilities like Amy's, which can really help to scale up bespoke or organoid models for functional or drug screens and really assist the research community in that aspect. I guess where we differ is that we are working up tissue models that are pre-established and can be accessed off the shelf, so pre-characterised. And we're doing this by combining organ automation with organoid-specific quality systems that we're establishing in-house and doing this in a, a new automated platform that we, we have. And so we're primarily focused on IPS-derived organoids as opposed to a lot of the patient-derived organoids. And that's something which is going to be a, a phase that we're going to enter into further down the track. So when we start thinking about you know, scaling up some of the stem cell-derived organoids and we talk to a lot of the researchers, we firstly start to think about you know, whether we should move towards high density straight away, so 96 up to 384, or maybe we want to use a bioreactor to mass generate embryoid bodies or things like that. But when we do that, it's always worth examining, re-examining a lot of the parameters because these can differ wildly as you change density. They're just not always scalable. You may need to revisit seeding densities and things like that and start from scratch. So it's always worth looking at some of these high-density platforms straight away. I think my general advice for you know how we can modify these organoid systems for high throughput is really impulses organoid researchers is you know, that we love biological complexity, we want to use more biological complex models, and we naturally want to accurately mimic the tissues that we're studying as much as possible. But actually, as we scale things up, you know, this complex biology must be stripped back so that we're specifically answering key biological questions that the researcher might have. And so by scaling back some of this complexity so that we are only really trying to study the key as biological process that we're interested in, we have to keep in mind that we have very clear readouts for the biological questions that we might be asking. We want to be open-eyed and have a, a very clear understanding of the limitations of the models that we're creating. And I always advise people to plan to validate their findings in more complex models or using organoids generated from different types of stem cells. So, for example, in our facility, we'll always develop an organoid model from both an embryonic stem cell line and an iPSC-derived model. And that way, when observations are found by researchers, you know, we can very quickly switch and validate it in an independent organoid model straight away. And it also, you know, most people, they'll come and they'll want a really complex brain organoid, but actually what they might want to be looking at is something that's a little less complex when they scale up first and then maybe validate those observations in a much more complex 100-day-old brain organoid, for example. So I think they're the sort of considerations that you might like to have. We're also trying to think a lot about 
you know, quality systems. And whilst people probably think about these as being quite rigid, particularly in the diagnostic space, you know, most of these quality management systems operate in the spirit of continuous improvement. So, you know, we're trying to mimic the processes of routine internal auditing processes or maybe using automation capability to run DOE plates, for example, and optimise things in, in better ways than it wouldn't be time or cost efficient to do if you were just doing smaller scale studies. We can invest in some of those processes a lot more than we would otherwise. I wanted to continue and discuss how can quality systems be adopted for organoid production? So I guess, you know, from my perspective, I went as a, as a researcher, a cancer researcher into a setting where I had to think about, you know, quality systems and, you know, delivering cell lines that are compliant with ISO 1725 requirements and processes. So I kind of started this facility with through that that lens. And one of the things that's really obvious to me, uh, while everyone's very quickly adopting 3D models and organoids, is that a lot of the quality systems specific for organoid production are not universally established yet. But the good news is that we can actually learn from other similar industries, right? So, you know, we can adopt and we can adapt a lot of their QCs and their standards that they have. So some examples might be, you know, laboratories that that develop cell-based therapies, stem cell biobanks, CGMB production of biologicals, a lot of the diagnostic laboratories that have to use a lot of those processes and, and pharma. So, you know, a lot of the, these processes exist. They just need to be tailored a little more towards organoid production. And I think it would be great to try and have some collective arrangements about how we have those processes in place for organoids. And I think there's some momentum around that about validating these models a bit more. I guess my best advice is starting from the starting point, which is your stem cell stocks. For me, you know, all of our organoid models come from stem cells or continuous cell lines for cancer spheroids and they're new ISSCR global standards that have just been announced for stem cells. So we've got a really good rule book there for building really good, you know, controlled stem cell banks and I think that's really important because if you're not confident in your stem cells and how they're entering the pipeline then actually you're not confident in a lot of the things that might go wrong downstream on that process. So as far as you know referring to the various quality systems for other industries we can think about things like traceability, ISO 9001 documentation structures, study plans, data management plans are super important. We might get into that a bit later on with how we manage data through the pipelines. Simple things like maintenance schedules. We have a check sheet like a pilot about to take off a plane that, you know, just get ticked off every single week um, so that, you know, things can't go wrong. And we also mimic internal auditing processes. So a good example of this would be each of us in our facility will take responsibility for developing a specific tissue model and then once we've established a protocol that we think is ready to launch we actually switch them around because internal auditing is all about having somebody come in and ask you questions why do you do this why do you do that so in a way we are mimicking a lot of those processes to refine what we're doing in the lab and i think lastly something which is super important is naming conventions and version tracking so you know, we have projects that are actually running across, you know, automation platforms. And whilst we have an integrated 
platform from Revity, a G3 Explorer platform, the different components actually require files for WinPrep, for Plateworks, for Soligo, for Harmony, for Signals, for, you know, the downstream processes. So, if you don't have strict naming conventions at the very start, it's very easy for things to be, become a bit of a mess. And so, I'm very strong on, on adopting very clear naming conventions uh, early on. From my perspective, I guess I work a lot more in the academic space. And so some of those ISO nine ISO accreditations, I suppose, are not as heavily mandated. Although I think, you know, having good laboratory practice is certainly very important. For us, I suppose, in our facility, we do try to stick to we not we are not ISO accredited yet. We're hoping to be there at some point. But we definitely have taken all that those sorts of things on board. I think just from a high throughput screening perspective, you know, we certainly have to keep track of all of our batches of everything, particularly Matrigel that can certainly, in um, different batches along the process, can be, you know, super detrimental um, if we run out of something and then you get different, completely different biology along the, along the way. So um, that's really important. I guess the other thing is really defining a set of controls for us along the way. So when we're taking these precious organoids from our clients, we want to make sure that they're working robustly. And so we'll work a lot with our clients to try and ascertain what, what controls and um, what, what treatments to make sure that they're working correctly in our hands are important. And so that type of Q, what I classify as QC for QC for screening is, is very important because those sorts of controls can help us to calculate Z prime values, which is um, an idea of how robust the assay is. And so those numbers for us when we do batch to batch screening, they're very, very important for us to assess if the samples are uh, performing as we expect. I think they're fantastic points, Amy, because uh, you actually are right. I mean, most people, there is a cost around ISO certification. And so Absolutely. that's just not, there's no appetite for that for researchers or small biotechs. So, you know, I just wanted to sort of put some quotation marks around some of that in that a lot of this that I'm referring to is actually about having a look at how some of those processes work and mimicking them to, a, to an extent because Absolutely. There is, yeah. there's a lot involved, you know, like if you want to do GLP or GMP, it's really not reasonable for a lot of facilities like us to do. And I think Amy made a great point there where, you know, we have our own in-cell stem cell stocks that we have in our facility. But a lot of facilities actually, a lot of clients may want to use their own stem cells or their own input. And so Amy makes a great point because actually we would always still run our own lines in parallel as a control to anything that comes in because we know how they perform and I think you've just got to have those controls in there as you scale up. Absolutely. Thank you both. And um. Adding further onto this, how can automation be used in ways not possible by manual production? You know, the first thing that comes to mind is scale of production, right? You know, automation doesn't sleep or tire, it it works on. But actually, it's been a big eye-opener for me because my background hasn't been in automation. And so, I'm starting to see it's not just eliminating some of the operator variation or bias when you're manually handling organoids. There's also the ability to do some weird and wonderful things, especially with the sort of platforms we use. So, we have a GE Cell Explorer system, which is a modular unit custom-built for 
producing organoids, and our liquid handling system is a extended deck Janus. So we can do a lot of things with the very span arm and with the MDT head and with scheduling software that can allow us to do anything anytime. That gives us a lot of things that you wouldn't think of before. So I guess one good example for me is you know, if you read a lot of the organoid protocols, these have been developed by hand where they might try different parameters one at a time, test and frail. We're actually using some of these liquid handling systems and robotics. We can actually run larger scale partial factorial DOE experiments, which is a way to actually trial a whole range, maybe thousands of different media or parameters or different handling parameters all at once and optimize your differentiation conditions really quickly without doing as many different samples. And so that's something that becomes possible on automation just by applying some of these DOE statistics over the top to that and doing that. So I think that, and it also is is important because, you know, if you're just a lab that might use that tissue model for a couple of grant paper cycles, it's not worth the investment. But when you're generating organoids at scale and for a continued period of time, it's really worth going back to those original protocols and optimising those procedures to a very precise point, which has got huge amounts of cost savings. So one example might be that you know most of us do full media changes three times a week because that is what is reasonable to ask your research assistant or your postdoc to do. But actually, if you think about how organoids work and the sort of environment, you're causing huge fluctuations in growth factors and the downstream signals inside those growth factors. So you could do something with organoids like start doing half media changes three times a day. Or you could actually look at organoids and say, well, they're quite small and they grow quite large. So how about we start doing half media changes twice a day when they're small and as they grow larger, we can actually do media changes more often or we can actually scale the amount of volume that we change and that way we can retrain some of the we, we can retain some of the paracrine factors that are getting secreted by the organoids as they differentiate we can save a lot of money on growth factors we can do a lot of these weird and wonderful things and i think that sort of better mirrors the developmental processes that are normally taken hand taking shape so in saying that There are times where you might want to have more of a direct change of signal. So, for example, wind activation early on, you know, you want to have tightly controlled cheer pulses. We can actually do that in a whole range of parameters, whether it's, you know, for two days or, you know, slowly the concentration increases. We can do all of that kind of thing with automated pipetting. And I think, lastly, it's really important to think about the precision that automation brings, not just the scale. So, for example, if you normally make embryoid bodies to start making an organoid, you'd just have a suspension of cells and you put them in a well and you might centrifuge it down to get it to collect. But what we're actually doing is we can put the media in a ULA plate and then we can bring the pipette tip down and we can very precisely put maybe four microliters of concentrated cells at the very bottom. And then all the cells are there together to form an EB and we don't need to centrifuge the plate. We don't need to do anything like that. And that's something that is just not really possible to do manually at all. 
Yeah, Nathan, you really hit the nail on the head there with everything that you've just mentioned. I, yeah, I don't have too much to add actually to that, but I would just wanted to say that, you know, automation really does help take the, do the grunt work in the lab and it really, you know, helps to facilitate testing lots and lots of different conditions that, you know, so it helps us to optimize some of these screens much, much faster than if we're trying to do it manually, for sure. I guess one thing I just wanted to add to that as well is that, you know, I think we think about liquid handling, robotics and automation pipelines and and, um, liquid dispensing, but there's also, you know, new things like 3D bioprinting, synthetic matrices, nanofabrication, which is really going to help to um, really make sure that the models that we're, we're using are really robustly dispensed and that when we're looking in a microplate format in a 96 or 384 well format that if we look across the entire plate that we're getting robust same models that we can actually use for for things like drug screening for example so i think automation is fantastic it can sometimes be a little bit slow but i absolutely agree with nathan that it does that particularly for ipsc type models um, really does help with um you know, processing these things going forward and, and ensuring that there's less less variability in our systems that we're using. Thanks, Amy. And um, thanks, Nathan. Could you share how you make sure you capture enough data but still able to manage the data amount? <laughs> this is a great <laughs> question. <laughs> Again, I guess I'm, I'm talking from a very academic sort of project perspective and a lot of the time, what we do, we image our microplates for clients and time is money. So the amount of time that we spend imaging is the amount of time that, that you know, well, the amount of time that we image equals dollars. And so that can very much blow their budget very quickly. It really, again, depends on the needs and priorities. So when I initially talk to clients about their projects, we would, we would be trying to ascertain the key elements going back to that point that Nathan made before about making sure that we're stripping back all of the parameters to those which are absolutely essential and those that are the priority. And so, um, you know, really from a data perspective, if we're capturing biochemical data, you know, with plate reader-based data, that really poses no issues. It's when we start to do these high throughput imaging-based screens. And, of course, we've got wonderful software that manages all of these images. So we, we utilise signals imaging artists from Reverty, but, you know, it's, again, we would go through certain things like looking at the size of the screen that they wanted to do eventually. We would conduct pilot studies to ascertain the feasibility of their approach. So when we do these pilot studies, we can give them the data and show them the data and we can give them a really informed opinion about how much data they would likely capture in a screen and then we go through the process of trying to ascertain how we can reduce that amount of data so actually just capturing what they need not everything so that can be things like looking at microscopic resolution how many fields we might capture how many z stacks we need to capture so as an example you know we might capture 10 fields and 25 fields and get exactly the same readout from that particular well so you know we can only only need to capture 10 fields in that instance and then if we know where we're dispensing the cells into the plates in, in matrigel, if we know roughly what Z heights that those uh, those um, cells will be at, um, it really helps to tell us then how we can actually direct our imager to, to image those. And so we're not capturing unnecessary stack images and that can also add to the overall amount when, you, when you're looking at doing these things on scale. So I think more often than not, I mean, it's quite 
again, it goes back to the point Nathan was making before about, you know, clients would like to do everything as much as the things, these things as possible. And so really it's our job to try and refine down what is absolutely required and, and what they're willing to pay. But also just on that point about the data that they generate, you know, the data we hold, temporarily hold the data for our clients until they're ready to take that data and when we finish a project, we want to hand that data over to the client. But it's also making sure that having those conversations really early to say, hey, you're going to have 20 terabytes of data that you're going to need to store. So you need to come up with funding for that or a mechanism for us to transfer that to you. And so that we try and have those conversations early on to really make sure that we're not, you know, going to be in a situation where we're stuck with having too much data and not not being able to get rid of any of it. So, yeah, I don't know. Nathan, do you have any comments? Well, I think it's my turn to defer to your experience, actually. So, (laughs) yeah, I mean, Amy's had a ton of experience in this area. I guess we're in the process right now, actually, of wrangling with, you know, where we set our Z levels with, you know, Matrigel assays and things like that at the moment. But I think the one thing I I probably would add is um, there's some features that can be really, really useful. So, our our Cell Explorer system has um, one of the new Phoenix Plus high content systems. And one of the aspects of that is something called PreziSpan. And yeah, uh, yeah, that, that allows yeah. us to sort of scan the whole well, low resolution, find where the organoid is, and then you can follow up at really high resolution. So, you know, things like that really make a huge difference because when you have things like organoids floating around, matrix-free, it can be very hard to pinpoint where they are. So, some of those capabilities, I think, are really, really useful. Thank you both. And um, just lastly, I wanted to ask, how can machine learning and artificial intelligence be used to improve organized production? I can probably start with that because we've started working with Ernst Wolvertang's group where they've already started investigating, identifying brain organoids that fail early. So, they have a you know, a computational biologist who's already used developing machine learning tools to try and identify some of these brain organoids that look fine at day 10, but then crash later on. And one thing that I found with some of these organoids is there's not always a normal distribution of of growth and health and viability and size. You know, whether the patterning doesn't go quite go wrong early on or not, but there are some organoids which will just fail and they were always going to fail. And it's been really surprising for me to see that machine learning can be used on bright field images of organoids retrospectively and actually be applied on new cultures to say, you know, this organoid looks fine now, but it's not going to make it. And another great thing with automation is you can actually build that into the system and say, well, why spend another 60, 40 days putting really expensive growth factors and defined medias on these organoids that are going to fail anyway, when we can actually just get the system to, you know, squirt some bleach in or something to stop that and then avoid feeding that well from then on. And that's a huge cost saving at scale if you can actually use machine learning to identify some of these organoids which are never going to be useful and you don't have to go forth and keep feeding them continuously. I think another area that we're investigating at the moment is back to that that area of being confident of your stem cells. So in the past, I've always had a process of getting photographs and quality checks of our stem cells 
because as most people know, it's a bit of an art to growing them and day-to-day situations can change with your stem cell cultures and you need to make a decision of, of whether they're good to enter the pipeline for generating organoids. And so we always build up these images But that's another example where machine learning can be used to actually go back and say, well, we got a batch of organoids that didn't have any glial cells in the brain organoids or they they failed. And you can actually go back and say, well, what was different back on day one with these stem cell stocks that gave us that outcome? And I think that's a really useful way to apply some of that technology. I think that lastly, it's also can save you some money around downstream processing. So we always have a handful of antibodies that will stain organoids, make sure certain cell markers are switched on before we pass the organoids on to clients. But we can actually use those immunofluorescence images to identify the phenotypes. And then we can actually go back and see if we can identify that the same phenotypes are present label-free without having to do that process. I mean, that's more of an ambition for us at the moment, but that's something which we may be able to do. We may be able to use cell staining or even, you know, bright field images and say, yep, these organoids are characteristic of the sort of cellular phenotypes that we're looking for. Yeah, absolutely agree, Nathan. I mean, from my perspective, machine learning certainly helps with quality control and going back to those points that we discussed earlier. I don't want to be a negative Nancy here, but I think, you know, there are some inherent challenges that we need to overcome with machine learning. And given the heterogeneity, particularly some of the cancer organoids that we see coming through our facility in terms of the size and the shape and their potential as well. But I think, you know, if we can, as Nathan mentioned, couple some of these imaging-based modalities and biochemical assays even into our pipelines, and that certainly will go some way, hopefully, to be able to make sure that we're ensuring that we're getting robust models across every plate that we screen, but also able to, um, you know, get rid of those which are not performing and have a mechanism to be able to, you know, stop a stop-go point in our assays. And that's a wrap today. A big thank you to Amy and Nathan for taking part in this podcast and for exploring this brilliant topic. It's been fantastic talking with you both. Thanks, Taylor. It's been great to talk about the work that we're, we're both doing. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this Drug Target Review podcast, sponsored by Revity. I've been Taylor Mixties, editor of Drug Target Review. 